It is now your job to ask people for money, specifically debts. When people do not pay their bills, it is your job to call them up as your friendly neighborhood debt collector. That is the professional vocation of my repeat guest, Mary Shores. Today's episode was important. I sat down with my dear friend Adele Tevlin and we spoke about a new era of leadership, something we are both incredibly passionate about. In particular, we dissected the idea of female leadership. What does it mean to be a female leader, both for ourselves as women, but also why the world needs us now more than ever. My guest today, April Stroink, and I, we share a very similar philosophy, and that is in order to ultimately achieve solid health, we need to have a system that helps us manage our wealth. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Are you okay with spending hours researching treatment plans and never achieving your business and impact goals? If you had effective and proven strategies for supporting you in practice that gave you back time and more clinical confidence, how would that make you feel? The Confident Clinician Club was created for clinicians like you, clinicians who wanted a trusted database of the most up-to-date knowledge, patient resources, and protocols that can be immediately implemented into patient care. The Confident Clinician saves you time while ensuring your patients get the best that integrative medicine has to offer. Our membership of over 550 integrative clinicians have access to our sophisticated portal with a growing database of webinars, templates, protocols, letters, and more. Live training, advanced training programs, and fellowship opportunities make this the most impactful clinical investment you can make in your career right now. With a 94% membership renewal rate, the Confident Clinician is paving the way for clinicians like you to focus on what really matters, your business. The doors are open January 17th through 31st. You can learn more at confidentclinicianclub.com. Del Tevlin, welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. Hi, Megs. We We have a big episode coming for all of you. We're going to go really deep and really hard on what it means to be a leader as a woman. And this is something that you and I, we could jam about this all day long. All day, every day. And we're going to talk to you guys about how you can maybe do that with us down down the road. But for today, just to give people context before we, we really unpack this super important topic, can you just give everyone a bit of a background in terms of who you are, how you got to where you are right now, and why you are so passionate about this topic? Thank you, Megan. I love I love you, and um, I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you today. So, basically, a little background on on me is um, I've always been passionate about human behavior. I have, you know, uh, a background in neuroscience and nutrition and cognitive behavioral therapy, and I've run uh, a company called Adele Wellness for ten years, which is a high a high performance weight loss consultancy for executives. Uh, where we look at, you know, a combination of mindset and mindfulness and nutrition to create sustainable change. So I've been in the sort of, you know, behavior change space for quite a while. What got me really interested in talking about female leadership and how we're kind of transitioning to this topic right now is that 
over the last three, four years, I was going into corporate and doing workshops for leadership teams, all on resilience and mindset and stress reduction. Because working on Bay Street, as you know, because you work on Bay Street too, um, you know, you, you meet a lot of very, very successful people who are very stressed out, very burnt out, and often very unfulfilled. So I got very curious about this. Um, I actually started a master's at Harvard last year uh, in human behavior and human psychology. And I started to really think about what I wanted to work my thesis on. And what actually came very kind of organically to me was that what I noticed when I was going out to these corporate workshops, talking about leadership and resilience and all this stuff, is that it would still be predominantly men in the room with very few women as leaders. And here we are, like it's 20, 2019, we're talking about female empowerment, and yet there aren't a lot of women at the top. And then the women that are at the top, the women that are CEOs or directors or VPs, They've had to be so in their masculine in order to lead. And we can dive more into that later. They've had to be so in their masculine that they've annihilated the feminine part of themselves. So I just got very curious about all of this. Um, And it's what I've embarked at Harvard to really study is like why there's still this gender gap that exists at elite levels of leadership and what's actually getting in the way of women rising, truly rising from a place of empowerment and actually helping close that gender gap so that we can lead effectively. So yeah, that's a bit of in a nutshell. Okay. So what's getting in the way? (laughs) We don't need 45 minutes. We could just go there right now. Yeah. Well, so basically the, my thesis is that the gender gap is actually a confidence gap. So when we look at the data all over the world, not just in North America, but that there is very much still a gender gap that exists. And what we, when we look at it further, we look at it and we say, well, you know, what is this gender gap about? And what we found is that it's very much a confidence gap. And when I say that to women, it's really funny because I've spoken to a lot of my female friends who are entrepreneurs. You and I have spoken about this. And whenever I say it's a confidence gap, the women are always like nodding, like, yes, it's a confidence gap. And going one step further, not only is it a confidence gap, but I'm actually calling it a self-efficacy gap where women don't feel like they have the self-efficacy the belief and the ability that they can actually achieve the goal. And there's a a few reasons why we can go into that as well. And so what I'm actually, you know, very much doing right now in, in, in my business and kind of relaunching something new, which is helping women bridge the gap by helping them increase their confidence and their self-efficacy because women, we know this, like women are really born leaders. You know, we're collaborative and creative and have empathy and compassion and all these beautiful traits. But the thing is, if you don't have the confidence, what is that going to look like? Are you actually going to go after the pursuits and the dreams that you want? And so that's what I've been finding is that it's a confidence gap. Mary Shores, welcome back to the Anthropology Podcast. Hey Megan, it is so nice to talk to you again. Well, I'm I'm excited that you are here. It's been about a year since we had you on the podcast before, and in that time, uh, you also came and spoke at my event, Impact Lives. And every time we chat, we realize we have all of these different things that we can unpack and and talk about. And and something that I learned at Impact Lives that I somehow did not know about you before um, was what your core business was 
was about. We got into communications and, and, you know, training with Hay House around writing books and all of these things, but didn't actually get into what your core business was. And so I want to, I want to push rewind and I want to give you a chance to really tell your story as an entrepreneur and talk about your core business. And then we have a ton of places uh, that we are going to go today. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to do that. Well, so I have a really unusual entrepreneurial story, which by the way, I was really in awe of yours because you shared your story at at the live event Impact Lives and I was I was just so, I don't know, like the word admire comes to mind when I listen to your story and how you got your start and the trip you went on and all of the things you discovered, I just feel so honored to know you. So thank you for the good work that you do in the world. It's really, really necessary, especially now. So my story starts off from a bumpy place, which I actually think that a lot of entrepreneurial stories do start that way. You know, I was on my own at 16. I, if, if anyone wants to listen to the other podcast, I might've mentioned this, but I was on my own at 16 and I was about as poor as you could be without being homeless. I was still in high school and I was living with a boyfriend and his sister and they were a little bit older than me by a couple of years. So that meant they were adults, but I was still a juvenile and Ended up getting pregnant at a super young age at 19. And my daughter was born with severe brain damage, which was a lot, which is a result of lack of oxygen to the brain for over five minutes. And what this looked like was that she was blind. She was deaf. She was unable to suck a bottle. She had a gastronomy tube inserted into her stomach for feeding and she lived for a year and a half. And after that time, I really hit rock bottom. So she passed away in 1993 and I was just a basket case. I did a lot of regressing back into teenage uh, behavior. But one thing that was very evident to me was that I was behind where all of my peers are or were at that time. Do you know what I mean? It's like my friends were graduating college and I quite literally didn't have a pot to piss in. When I got this opportunity to start a business, I really jumped at it because I didn't feel like I had a lot of other alternatives. I felt like I would be stuck in very low paying jobs. I knew that I was smart. I mean, I think that when you're that age, you just think you know everything. But I wanted to do something else with my life. And so I opened a collection agency, which is a very unique and a very also male dominated industry. And the reason that I was able to open a collection agency is because my parents had owned one growing up and through some things that were going down in my family, like drama wise, the business was closing. I had previously worked there, had developed enough relationship with some with some clients that I could go to them and have enough clients to get started with. And also, there's quite an uphill battle to get the proper licensing, which was hard because I was so young. I was actually the youngest person in the United States to open a collection agency when I was only 24. This is amazing. I'm sitting here like, okay, what happened next? (laughs) Well, I got to work. So 
you know, of course, I thought I knew how to run a business at 24 years old, but I so didn't know anything. And over, you know, the next uh, 21 years of my career, which leads up to now, I definitely learned my trade. I made lots of mistakes. I did enough things right that, you know, I think statistics are showing that businesses close within uh, the first seven years. And I've been in business 21 years, going very strong, branching out into all different kinds of directions. So we do the debt collections. My mission with collections has always been somewhat different because it wasn't like it wasn't like I had this mad, passionate dream to become a debt collector. I didn't sit around as a child and dream up this career as a debt collector. But what I was mad, passionate about was being a businesswoman. I always knew that someday I would own a business. And when I was like young and uh, hanging out with my friends and they would be partying, I would like sit there and design what my letterhead would look like. I was just always all about someday I was going to be this businesswoman. So when I got this opportunity to start a business, I definitely jumped at it, but I needed to make it my own. And my idea right from the beginning was that I wanted to be different uh, as far as the way that people were treated, because in the collections industry, I, I feel like there's a really an issue with dehumanizing the process of collecting money from someone and I really wanted to be different. So I decided to take a sales approach, but this failed and it failed because people are really wired towards this negativity bias. And we talked about negativity bias on the last show, so I won't go into that deeply. But when all your other competition is basically scaring people to death in order to get them to pay, they're more likely to pay those people than to pay me. So sales was not going to work out. But once I really got to the root of the issue, which is all the shame and the unworthiness that people feel just by having a debt. Because see, having a debt is a psychological burden. And it's a burden that gets in between people and living the life that they want to live. My research has shown that if someone has a debt, they're less likely to start a business. They're less likely to apply for a mortgage. They're less likely to apply for certain jobs because a lot of jobs nowadays do require credit checks. They're even less likely to be in the same relationships because they don't feel worthy. And so once I understood that, I knew how to make a shift. And my goal became, I want people to feel good about paying their debt because having a debt is this burden. And it just, it just sort of slowly over time all worked out. And that's how I created the communication code, which eventually became my best-selling book. April Stroink, welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. Thank you. I am super excited to be here, Megan. Well, we're just going to jump right into it. And I think this is such a timely, a timely topic. I've been having, I've been dropping the discussion of the connection between health and wealth and our money mindset for the last little while. It's seems to always be the elephant in the room when you're hanging out with the heart centered entrepreneurs. And I think we just need to, we just need to dive right into it. So April, can you give everyone a background as to who you are and why you so passionately make the connection between these two concepts? 
Absolutely. So uh, I've been in this space for over 20 years. And I started out with a national financial firm and was classically trained, if you will, as a financial advisor. So getting people to retirement, uh, making sure their safety net is in place. And then when I came to realize in my practice and especially in the conversations that I was having with my clients, exactly like you just said, the money money was really, especially around mindset and emotion, was the elephant in the room. And I would say I had excellent training with a company that I was with, but we never, ever talked about emotion and how money is emotional. So in my life, um, in addition to running my financial practice, my husband, I also owned a retail business. And as you know, as small business owners, money is super emotional. Um, And what I started to see is just drawing these parallels between money and emotion and also health. Uh, My mother has a saying that health is wealth. And I always started to challenge her that wealth equals health as well. From all of my studies that I have seen that if you financial health is one of the pillars of full health. And if you do have your posts in order, what we're seeing is that you have less mental stress, um, you have better physical health, it all ties into each other. And even though we've made strides in mental health, not as much as we as we should have yet or, or getting there, we still don't talk about money. Bandura, Albert Bandura talks about self-efficacy. So, so self-efficacy is, is by definition, it's one's belief in their ability to achieve a goal. So it's not your ability to achieve a goal. It's your belief in the ability to achieve a goal. So for example, you can have domain-specific self-efficacy or general self-efficacy. For example, like let's say, for example, I know I'm really good at uh, Pilates, okay? But just because I'm good at Pilates doesn't mean that I'm going to feel like I'm good at playing hockey. So self-efficacy can be very domain-specific, like I'm very good at this one thing, or it can be more general. What what they say is the more self-efficacy you have in different arenas, the more you feel confident about your belief in in doing something new. And there's a few ways that you can build self-efficacy. One of those ways is by getting verbal praise by someone. So if you think about like women in leadership, if you work in a corporate environment, right? First of all, if you're working in corporate and most of the people above you are men, okay? And one of the ways in which you build self-efficacy is, is by modeling someone that's like you. So if you have people that are in leadership that are not like you, aka they're not even the same gender. And if you're not getting a lot of verbal praise, like very good job, which doesn't happen a lot, maybe at high levels of leadership, then it, it doesn't give you an opportunity to build those skills. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. So, so there's, there's five ways that we can build self-efficacy and and one of those ways is visualization. So, so visualizing yourself achieving the goal. It's why they, when they do those studies of basketball players who uh, visualize dunking into the net versus the ones that actually practice, the ones that are actually visualization, visualizing it have almost on par the same scores or uh, as the ones that are actually practically doing it because you're using your reticular activating system. So Basically, there's a part of your brain that when you visualize, it's actually using the same neural networks as if you were actually practicing it. 
So visualization is key. Verbal persuasion for self-efficacy is key. So having someone say, you know what, Megan, that was a really great job. You did amazing. Modeling someone like you. So exactly what you said. So if you're a woman and you're looking for a model, like, I don't know about you, Megs, but most of the mentors in my life were men for a very long Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Um, Only more recently, I would say in the last three, five years, I've, I've had women mentors, but most of the mentors I've had in my life are men. So it's like what happens if you have a mentor that's a man, even if he's amazing in a woman's mind, you're going, well, he's a man. So I actually, yes, that's great. But can I really achieve that? Cause I'm a woman. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so those are some of the ways that one can build self-efficacy, but because we're not the way that corporate is run or the way that leadership is run, isn't structured to necessarily help women build self-efficacy, this then feeds into their self-esteem because self-efficacy and self-esteem are very like inextricably linked. They're not the same concept, but they're very linked. So if you have low self-efficacy, you might have low self-esteem. If you have high self-efficacy, you might have high self-esteem. If you have high self-esteem, this is also going to link to your confidence. So these are all the ways in which when you look at, you know, to kind of bring it back to, so what's, what's the gender gap really about? In my mind, in my opinion, and based on the research, it's really self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-efficacy. You know, there's niche markets in, in collections, just like anything else. And the market that I happen to work in is, is in healthcare. And so I really like working with doctors, hospitals, clinics, I mean, on any level. And one of the things that I see, and, and I can understand the struggle, because one, people who are healers on any any level of the spectrum, you know, I don't care if you're a chiropractor, a surgeon, um, a nurse, these are very nurturing people by nature. And by the way, veterinarians have the same problem. <laughs> It can be a difficult conversation because of the anxiety that you feel to ask. Right. Because we have belief systems built around money. Like, for example, we might look at a person and the way that they're dressed, and we might make an assumption that that person couldn't afford our services. And it almost becomes like this game between the patient and the practitioner where the patient might drop little hints like, oh, I'm having to pay for my son's surgery or you know what I'm talking about, right? Where they're like dropping a little hints here and there throughout the conversation, which is actually making you feel like bad when you get to that point of having to ask for payment. So here's a couple of tips, but just just know that the struggle is real and that I have been working in this space for over 20 years and actually working with doctors for even longer because even when I was 13 years old and working at my parents' agency, the, the struggle was the same. And that becomes this like innately, we feel that there's something wrong in, in taking this from another person. And we, we need to, just like we're telling all of our patients, right, that it boils down to our belief systems. So it's in looking at those belief systems that we have ourselves about money. And then a lot of times when I'm teaching workshops, I might uncover that someone themselves like might have grown up in a situation where their parents were in debt. So if their parents were in debt and they were watching their parents struggle, then they're going to form one kind of belief about billing. But on the other hand, you might have another person where they grew up in a family where it was a very strong moral compass that the right thing to do was pay the bills. And these people who have this belief that bills should be paid, it's a lot actually easier for them to ask for money. 
than it is for someone who might have been around someone who was struggling financially. I know for myself, um, I've been on every every possible place on the the Monopoly board because when I, you know, I told you about like when my daughter was alive, I was on welfare and food stamps. I mean, like I literally had nothing and I wasn't able to necessarily structure my finances in a way that you know, was abundance or whatever we would say in these. But then I've also been, you know, on the other end of the spectrum where now as an adult businesswoman, I've done very, very well for myself. But one of the reasons that I've been able to become this successful is because I didn't build up all these belief systems about money or that being in debt was somehow bad. But the tips for your audience would be, the first thing I recommend is definitely setting up policies and procedures around your billing practices. Because one of the things that happens is if you are in a one-on-one conversation with a patient and you have a decision to make, that's going to put pressure on you to decide in the way that you're going to be influenced by their set of circumstances. Okay. Whereas if you have a policy and procedure, you're really not making a decision on the spot. But as a business person, as an entrepreneur, I can tell you that anytime that I am pushed to make an on the spot decision, it doesn't usually work out very well for me. Another helpful hint is if your practice is big enough to where you, you as the provider is not the person having the conversation, um, I think that that's the best case scenario. So for example, you know, you're the one working with the patient, but you have say an office manager or a billing specialist, or you have somebody who's doing that particular part of the job and that the tasks are separated and they're not intermingled. Because it's not really appropriate for a patient to confront the doctor about money either. Both of us work with a cohort of individuals who many of whom live by the mantra, I just want to help people as if that that vocation and that intention is incongruent with building any level of wealth. What do you want to say to those entrepreneurs? Oh my goodness, what I say on a daily basis is that it is okay to make money. And in fact, by you making good money inside of your practice, then you will be able to serve those people in your community that you have been put here to serve in a way that is fully holistic. And what I mean by that is that, as we were talking about before, that there is such a link between health and wealth. And if you as a practitioner are are, are feeling financial stress, um, that's going to be it's going to be shown in your practice. And on the flip side, you need to understand that people may be coming to see you because of physical or, or, or mental health because of their stresses around finance as well. And yet, as practitioners, we have this story in our heads that we are, are telling ourselves that, in regards to our clients um, that if I charge, that I will not be able to serve. And I see time and time again with the practitioners that I work with that we can get the mechanic side of things down, but we really have to start with that mindset. And when they really see the two come together, just like you said, Megan, that's when the magic starts to happen. 
hundred percent. And if I were to un- like just lift the veil on, uh, we, we would run into, obviously, as a practitioner, I had an intake form for patients. And one of the questions we asked on our intake form is, where would you identify as your primary source of stress in your life? Mm-hmm. And we always, we categorize that. We kept this data because it was, we had five things to choose from or in other category. The top sources of stress in almost everyone's life were relationships and money. And it didn't matter how much money people had. I mean, we had some very wealthy clients and it was still a consistent source of a stress in their life, often for different reasons as things start to start to grow. And so, you know, as a cohort of individuals who address the root cause of the problem, I am forever fascinated that this is an area where everyone literally just sweeps under the rug because uh, they don't want to, they don't want to dive into it. And I couldn't agree with you more that understanding financial health and how to get there and how to wrap your mindset around it is is going to absolutely distinguish you when it comes to how you're working with your patients. You're going to find that you have more and more of these conversations because there's a sudden acknowledgement of the fact that it's the elephant in the room. Where do you start with people around the mindset piece? Because it's not going to work. My dad used to say to me sometimes when I would say, I can't get it, or this is really bothering me. I mean, it was such, I was going to say it's such a man thing to say, but I don't mean to generalize. <laughs> what he would say to me is, well, We'll just get over it. And so if I said to him, like, well, I'm struggling with this mindset thing around money, he would literally look at me and be like, well, just get over it, um, which I don't, I, it, it doesn't work. Um, where do you send people to start, to start their journey of getting over it? Well, it's really interesting what you say in regards to um, the men's side of it, because I believe very strongly that women approach money differently than than men do. And it's interesting because when I work with clients, um, I always start on the personal finance side, no matter what. So even if they're coming to me in regards to their practice, I want to start with the lifestyle congruency part because I believe very strongly that the way you show up in your business in regards to your money mindset is the same way that you show up in your personal life. You can't tell me that on one side, you um, have these emotions in regards to your money and then in the business is completely different. So I actually start um, on the personal finance side because I want to see what does the business owner need to take home from their business on a consistent monthly basis to fuel their lifestyle. I so often see that um, the business is running the owner versus the other way around. So I want to really see, okay, what is your financial why? We talk about so much about our why, which I think is awesome, but what's your financial why for being an entrepreneur? So I do a deep dive um, into... First of all, the first meeting that I have, I ask that the the person's partner uh, comes along as well. Because if we're doing healthy financial habits and we're building financial healthy financial habits into our personal life, into our business, if the person that you are spending the most amount of time with is not on board, you're not going to have as great a success. It's kind of like somebody quitting smoking and then you're the person you spend the most amount of time with is smoking a pack a day. It just it just won't work. So in that first meeting with a couple. And it's interesting because I usually have the first contact with the woman and then the man comes along just to make things copacetic in the household. And then it's really interesting is halfway through the program, I start to see it really switch. So in that first meeting though, I really ask the questions of how 
they work together as a couple with their money. How are, do they have separate accounts? Do they have their accounts together? What is their first memory of money um, together as a couple? How do they work together in their decision process? What does financial freedom mean to each of them? I ask each of them these questions. And Megan, it is so interesting um, what happens during that hour together. And there have been times that this is the first time in the couple's relationship that they've ever asked these questions or that they've ever had these discussions with each other. There have been times when I've just asked, would you like me to leave the room at this moment? And I have left the room so that they can continue on with this discussion. Um, As far as relationships are concerned in Canada, the number one reason for separation in this country is due to financial stress and financial issues. Because again, we just aren't talking about it. So I've, that's where I start with. And um, once we go through uh, understanding their mindset and how they work together as a couple and the goals they want to have together as a couple, because we want them to be rowing in the same financial boat. Otherwise, they're not going to reach those goals. And from there, I actually, um, I have an analyst that I work with and we analyze four months of somebody's spending habits. And the reason why we do that is because, again, of our mindset around money. If you put together your own budget, you are going to rationalize the heck out of every single purchase that you make, right? But if you have somebody third party going through who is committed to your success, but not attached emotionally, they are going to put the numbers in black and white. So we come back for a second meeting and in that meeting, it's probably the first time they've seen their entire financial life in front of them. And we start with their reality data or their spending habits. And in a very non-judgmental way, I just let them know, this is where you are behaviorally spending. Um, This is why you're not reaching your goals. This is what you need to do to correct that. And the interesting thing about that exercise is that then gives me the number that I work with in the business to say, okay, we know this is what you need from the business to be taken from the business to support your financial lifestyle and the goals and dreams of your family. How do we reverse engineer that into the top top line revenue um, in order to make that happen? And then I'm a profit first professional. I was really gravitated to profit first because it works with your behaviors and it works with behavioral finance. Um, and then we run, we run through that whole system once we get on that side. When you move out of that place of scarcity, and by move out of it, I don't mean you suddenly are bestowed with abundance, but you, you don't align and acquaint yourself with that mindset any longer. It sets a completely new standard for what you can achieve and output and visualize. And it is an extremely toxic layer of thinking to be stuck there. Totally. And like, here's the thing, like I talk about this all the time with, with clients or, or just, you know, with friends where the thing about the human mind and the ego mind, you know, the limbic system and where the ego resides, so to speak, is that, you know, it's always going to look for the negative. The, the ego and that the limbic system is always going to look for the fear because that's how it's conditioned. It's, it's very much a fight or flight reaction. And so to go into this other way of thinking really requires training and skill. And when you talk about mindset, mindset isn't like, 
you know, okay, like I understand there's abundance versus scarcity. I'm going to pick abundance. It's, it's really cultivating. I always call it cultivating a skilled mind because the mind, even if you have a skilled mind, I'm sure you have this too, Megan. There's days where you just feel like, you know what? Things feel like kind of crappy today. You know what I mean? And it takes something to move yourself into a more abundant mindset. And what I, what I say that it takes is it actually takes the skill and the repetition and the, and the daily practice, but it also takes the belief. You know, the belief is so important. You have to believe that you're going to succeed because if you believe you're going to succeed and then you, then your reticular activating system is actually looking for the evidence that you can succeed. If you believe you can't succeed, you won't, you know, that there's that uh, expression, like whether, whether you believe yes or no, like you're right kind of thing. So I think belief is so important when you're looking at mindset and you're looking at women and you're looking at leadership and you're looking at what's going on in that area. It's like, do women truly, do they truly believe they can succeed and be successful in what they're doing? So how do we start to shift that mindset? Because I feel like there's a lot of people who are like, I want to want to feel that way, but they're not, uh, they're not there. They're like, when I'm really honest about it, they're like, I, I can't get past that negative or I can't find evidence of success in my life. Or, you know what, that person is actually just better at the job than, than I am. Like, how do we break that? So, oh my God, this is like my favorite topic ever. So basically, <laughs> and we didn't plan this. <laughs> we totally didn't plan this. I think that's always the best. So there's so many, there's so many things going on when you talk about that. So I always bring it back to, you know, when I work with, with clients or the stuff that I'm doing with, uh, with my new, uh, you know, confidence stuff and, and the stuff at Harvard is really looking at our childhood belief systems and imprints and how that actually very much creates our identity. And it actually creates our limiting beliefs about things. Okay. So when you say like, how can we shift if someone doesn't believe that they can't find the evidence? So there's a few things. So one of the modalities I love using and I, I practice and I'm a practitioner of is cognitive behavioral therapy. I love CBT. Because it really shows us that our thoughts predict our behavior, like 100% of the time. For example, if you have a thought and it's an automatic thought, it happens so intrinsically, like you're not conscious to it. You have a thought that's like, you know what? This isn't going to work. I can't do this. Well, what's going to happen if you say, I can't do this, right? Is you're going to feel a certain way. And how might you feel? You might feel frustrated. You might feel disempowered. You might feel anxious. And if you feel frustrated, disempowered, and anxious, what do you think your behavior is going to be? Not abundant. No, not abundant. Well, you're <laughs> going to probably avoid. Yeah, exactly. You're going to avoid what you need to do, or you might even sabotage what you need to do. And then you get in the vicious cycle of you then sabotage or you avoid, and then you confirm your bias. You confirm that, well, I can't do this anyway, so there, therefore I'm right. right. And that's just kind of like confirmation bias. That's like psychology 101. You're always going to confirm your own biases. So part of it, is when I, when I work with people or when I see those, those limiting beliefs, it's about being an understanding what the belief is and actually showing them that the validity of that thought, when you really deconstruct it and look at the evidence objectively, that thought's not very valid. That thought comes from some, some core belief or something that happened to us as a kid. It's a story. It's not really true. So when I think when you can show people that sometimes their thoughts are stories or, or, or some version of something that happened a very long time ago that don't even, they're not valid for them now, then it unhooks them 
it unhooks some of that and it, and it creates an opening for them to see something that's new, a new possibility, so to speak. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And the, the sabotage piece is so real. I see, I see that in, uh, I'm just talking about female leaders, but I see that in female leaders all the time that we sabotage these opportunities for success. And I sit there sometimes in clinic with my, my patients and my jaw drops open. They're like, what? I'm like, do you hear what's just happened? Like we just, we just went full circle on the sabotaging of the opportunity. And they're like, Oh, oh." it's so pervasive. Why do you think, why do you think that is like, why do you think women sabotage? And it's not just women, it's men too, but you know, let's, we're talking about, we're talking about women. I think women do it. I think women do it a lot. Um, and I have my theory as to why they do it, but I, I wanted to hear like why, just based on what you're saying, like why you think that. Well, you know what? I'm going to, I don't, I, I'm going to speak only to my own experience. I think mm-hmm. sometimes when I'll say when I sabotage things, when I'm like mm-hmm. out there and there's this potential to move forward, and I was like, oh, you did this. I don't also just describe it as, and then I, I just feel, it feels like an, an energetic nakedness that you're like, I'm going to take this risk and I'm stepping out there. And it's, it's, it feels lonely sometimes standing out on this ledge. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to move forward. And I'm standing on this naked ledge again. And I'm on this naked. And I, I think that for, for women in leadership, we kind of feel like we're, we're, I feel sometimes like I'm walking the plank and I'm alone. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I feel like I look over at the plank to my right and it's filled with a whole bunch of men with beers in their hands and they're all at the bar and they're like, it's cool. We'll walk the plank together. So, and which is not true. It's my own limiting beliefs. Um, but uh, it speaks to the need to cultivate uh, in, in my perspective, community where your community holds you to a higher standard. And 100%. I was speaking about my experience in, in high school with my husband the other day. And, and he was like, like, what difference has it made now, the school that you went to? And I was like, the biggest difference it made for me is it set a standard for achievement and success and contribution that like, that everyone was just expected to achieve. So the expectation was that you're going to go to university and you're, you're going to do more education and that you're going to contribute because that's just, that was the, the culture of where I went to school. And when there's no doubt that that's what you're supposed to do, then you don't feel as vulnerable. You don't think to sabotage what you're doing when you're moving in and out of ongoing conversations about, well, am I supposed to be doing this? Can I do this? Can I balance all these pieces? You know, I, I think my role is this. I, I don't feel like we're all out on that bridge together. I feel like so much of the language and um, interaction with respect to people and money is all so based on limiting beliefs. Yes, because it's all an emotional charge and we're so triggered. And that's like with my uh, training, the five principles of the communication code, we talk about that. Like I teach people how to learn when people are triggered and then what words to say to get them out of that triggered state. So when I say triggered, I really just mean they're activated in their fight or flight. And what we need to do is like deactivate their fight or flight and try to activate their parasympathetic and we and i have a specific process of communication on how to do that but like for simple tips for today one of the easiest things is just as you're training your receptionist to take that payment instead of saying something like are you able to or is there any way or a passive yes or no question is just simply to say oh your balance today or your copayment or however it is for your business you know your balance today is $100 how will you be paying that I love how simple that is. And it reminded me of an experience we had with a receptionist in my previous clinic 
she was uncomfortable as many of us are when we're first starting out our own businesses when we realize we can't afford our own services necessarily when we're fresh out of school and every time the balance would come up for our uh, clients she would open with i am so sorry your balance is this and we overheard it one day and we were like abort abort you like stop it what are you doing she's like oh it's just it's so much i was like there is so much baggage that you just dropped in between this conversation and i said this person felt tremendously empowered to have made an investment in their health don't apologize to them for that this was their priority and um oh my gosh it is so so critical to make sure that your your team is positioning this as an opportunity to again reinforce for people the power of their investment that particular person who was you know empowered with that job that she was bringing her emo- own emotional triggers into the moment of asking for money and so i call this fear of the freak out it's when the representative uh, the representative is so has so much anxiety about asking for money and so she might have been somebody who grew up where she was watching a hardship happen with like her grandparents her aunts you know someone close to her having a hardship over money or her having her own hardships over money, because sometimes we uh, make an assumption that everybody's in the same situation we we are, but money's all relative. You know, if you ask one person, what is a lot of money? They might say $300 and you might ask another person and they say $3 and you might ask another person and they say $300,000, you know, because money is relative to each person and, and what they're comfortable with. I would, I would, If I were in your shoes, I would, as part of my training agenda, I would explain that every patient who walks through our door, every participant, every client who walks through the door, they know that our services are a la carte. They're not, you know, they're not free and they have somewhat of an idea that of the expense before walking in the door and they're making that choice for themselves. But really, if we add up how much money is wasted on things like unhealthy things, cigarettes, going to fast food joints, pizza, you know, really it balances out. So people make choices according to their priorities. And so when I was much younger and I had to pick and choose, I would choose to make that investment to pay for my health over paying for an investment of like junk food and other things that to me were non-necessities. I was on this yoga retreat um, in Hawaii over the new year in, um, it was going to be, it was 2016 to 2017. And I met this woman and she had a very serious case of kyphosis. It was one of the worst cases I had ever seen. And she could barely move. And she was much older. She was probably like 62 So she was much older than me by about 20 years. Well, I said something to her because I have kyphosis and I was paying to get this traction therapy done. And I told her that I felt like her kyphosis could really be um, significantly improved. And she goes, yeah, um, I got a quote, but it won't, it's not covered by my insurance. So I'm not going to do it. Now I looked at her and I said, you realize this vacation you're on costs more than that treatment plan. And she said, yeah. And like, there's a problem there. Do you know what I mean? I never personally make a healthcare decision based on how much insurance will pay ever because they're not working. They're not looking at my best interest. Only I am. For sure. And it's, it's 
I, I mean, listen, I think the, the, the conversation around money and, and health and investment in self is, is, uh, it's deep and it's, it's extremely, uh, complex. But at the end of the day, when we step out of it, it is simply a matter of prioritization. And if you can't afford to be healthy, then I promise you, you definitely can't afford to eat pizza. Exactly. Right? Like it's, it's, it's really that simple. Like these complicated things are sometimes very simple. And I totally understand that. What has been um, in, in the work that you have d- done, what has been the most powerful way of broaching a conversation with someone when they really do owe you money and their feet are, are firmly planted in the sand? Like how do you unpack, how do you unpack that piece for them? Well, I want to go I want to go right back to making sure that you have a financial policy. So I, you know, I'm the person that's going to harp and harp and harp on that, making sure there's a financial policy and making sure that it is signed. And so one of the things that can easily be done is just bringing the conversation back to the agreement points on the contract. So, you know, the person signed a contract, they agreed to services. And if you have policies and procedures set up, hopefully what you're doing is like this is a, in, in a per, like this is not to shame anyone who's not doing this. OK, it's just like if you're not doing this, consider consider that you could move in this direction of doing this and your practice will be better in having done so. So like let's say, for example, you have a policy that says accounts that are passed due by either 90 days or 120 days is going to be referred to our collection agency. Now, to me, that's a non-negotiable thing. It's in writing and it says this is going to happen. And so what you have to also be able to do as like the practitioner or as the business owner is to be able to follow your own policies. And I know that you asked me about like the specific conversation and I'm going to get to that. But like in order to empower yourself to be able to have the conversation in the first place, it's good if you have this foundation set. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So if you have this foundation laid, then the conversation is going to look very plain. You know, it's going to say, you know, the balance due is $200. How will you be taking care of that? And then they're going to say whatever they say, like my dog just died whatever the, whatever they're going to say okay they're going to give you the story this is the time for the story and you're going to hear the story and then what i'm asking what i teach in my trainings is that whatever they say we need to validate what they said because the human brain i call them these like we have like a checklist in our mind and in, in order to be able to emotionally move on in the conversation we need to be able to check the box that says we've been heard so the the very first part of this is you want to validate what the patient is saying to you. And that's it, validation is not an apology. So like your other person who was like, I'm so sorry. It's a, you know, I understand your circumstances. It must be very difficult. I'm so glad that you shared that with me. That's a validation. The thing that really sets me apart from other debt collectors is that I believe in the power of empathy and compassion in order to create an ultimate rapport and connection with your patients. And that's really what's important because the level of connection you have with your patient is going to determine how that relationship goes. And Megan, I just want to tell you that if you're unable to establish that, and if it's something over payment, this is probably not a person you want in your practice anyway. Probably not. Right. And we need to we need to also recognize that and be able to let go. You know, sometimes a doctor might think, I don't ever want to turn someone away for payment. But like, how is that person energetically affecting you? And I'll tell you a little story. I have a it's a local doctor here in my town. He owned a a sleep study clinic. 
and he sold it to our bigger clinic in town. And he called me one day out of the blue years and years after he had sold his practice. And I'm sure he made a ton of cash selling it because he was the only game in town. You know what I mean? So he calls me up and he goes, Mary, you're never going to believe what happened. And I'm like, what? Like, why are you calling me? <laughs> and he says, um, well, I ordered pizza last night and the guy who showed up at my door to deliver the pizza owes me $45 from like seven years ago. And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, did you pay for the pizza? And he goes, yeah. But here's the thing. That kid delivering that pizza he didn't recognize that doctor. There's no way. You know what I mean? He's just delivering a pizza. But like the doctor was still holding on to it. So one of the things that I say often to clients is we have to we have to drop this um, emotional charge we have over the people that owe us money. We need to be able to let that go. It is so important because I guarantee you that that pizza driver is not losing sleep at night. I guarantee you he's not. Right. But do you see how it's still affecting this doctor to the point where he was so agitated over it that he called me up? I just had something in my throat. I had to take a little drink. <laughs> That's okay. Real life happening here. I know, right? Like, okay. Cause this, see, I get so excited talking about money and collections. My, my throat chakra is burning right now. Well, I want to break down what the profit first uh, methodology looks like. Cause it's so smart. It's so brilliant. I remember the first time I was introduced to it as an entrepreneur, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is what I need. And I just, I want to underscore one of the things that you were talking about there. And that is this idea of not outsourcing the money management conversation mm -hmm. and responsibility to your partner. And even if you're not the biggest breadwinner in your family, I think there's a really critical energetic acknowledgement when you have full transparency around what's happening with respect to those finances. And also you have ownership over some element of those, uh, those finances. And I feel like that's, that is, that is a behavior that I also see, um, passed along in relationships where you maybe had modeling in your own household where one of your parents uh, controlled the finances more than the other. And you find you move into your relationship with your partner and you're, you're very much okay to default into that, uh, into that same zone. And I'm, I'm really passionate about uh, women in particular, ensuring that they have control over what happens with respect to um, household finances and having a capacity to contribute in some way. That doesn't mean you're making all the money necessarily, although that would be awesome. Um, but that you have th that you have full uh, acknowledgement as to what's going on. Completely. In my practice, as I said, it's primarily I work with women practitioners and they are coming to me and seeking um, just exactly what you say. They want to step into their money power. They want to understand what's happening in their practice and they want to understand what's happening in their personal finances at home as well. I believe that one person in the household should be the CFO just for complete organizational purposes, but it is so important that um, both spouses be involved. When I first started in my financial career, I actually had to deliver a um, life insurance policy to a grieving widow. And it wasn't until I walked through the door 
that she realized that her husband had canceled two of the three policies. And so she's already reeling from the death of the spouse. And because she had abdicated her finances to her husband, she had 75% less coming in than what she had anticipated. And let me tell you, that was a very difficult conversation. Absolutely. And I agree with you on the CFO allocation. I take that role in our household. Um, but it's really important to me that my husband's involved in those in the decisions and he understands the decisions I'm making because I don't want the sole financial mm-hmm. responsibility. I I want a board of directors um, <laughs> at my disposal with respect to those uh, those pieces because I, I don't I just don't want to own that own that burden. Um, Okay, I want to talk about profit first, because it is so super cool um, when it comes to the movement of money within our businesses. And it is a really effective strategy. If you're one of those people where money's sitting in your bank account, you're like, oh, what am I going to spend it on? (laughs) Uh, This is a super awesome system uh, to help you organize away from that uh, money mindset trap. Do you want to take us through at a high level, April, what the profit first methodology is all about? Absolutely. And Megan, I'm the same way. When I first came across it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been sort of looking for my whole life. And the reason being is exactly what you said. It is a, let's face it. We are not programmed in our brains, most of us, unless we're accountant or bookkeeper, to look at our financial statements on the daily and to glean from them the story that they're telling us and make our decisions based on that. It's just not the way that our brain is wired. Um, So the way that our brain is wired as an entrepreneur is that we take a look at our bank account and we see money there and we're like, awesome we can spend it. And then we completely forget that our annual insurance uh, is coming due or our licensing is coming due and holy whatever. I just didn't. Right. Yeah. So what profit first does is it's not, it's not, it's not something new. It's, it really is. Mike Michalowicz has taken the old fashioned idea of different envelopes and now has applied it to business. And it's so brilliant because It really is all based on um, Parkinson's law, which says that if you have a full tube of toothpaste, you will squeeze, you will put all kinds of toothpaste on your toothbrush. But then as you get less and less toothpaste, you do everything you can to squeeze that out. I actually have one sitting on the counter right now. So what we do is we work with that to say, okay, well, if I trick my brain into thinking that there's less in my bank account, I will actually become more innovative and I will spend less or I will spend within my means. So what we do is we set up five different bank accounts. You have one bank account that your revenue all comes into. And from there, you allocate a portion to a profit account, to owner's pay, to your taxes, and then your operating expenses. And based on your income, there's different allocations. But you do this in a methodical manner and you do that in this, that order every time. So you always take your profit first. That's where it comes from. And by doing that, when you look at your bank account and you use this bank balance accounting, you will see right off the get-go, oh, I only have this amount in operating expenses. So if I am looking to take another course or I am looking to buy something inside of my uh, business, I have this amount that I can do that in. 
And then there's also the relief of knowing my HST is all taken care of. That's not always applicable to our practitioners, but the sales tax is taken care of, the income tax is taken care of, and lo and behold, I am paying myself a market-based wage and I'm now acting like a CEO of my company and I have profit allocations to myself as a shareholder. Which is so key because I have so many practitioners coming to me and, and other business owners who are like, I think I'd like to sell my business. And then we go back and we look at things and we're like, well, it hasn't been particularly profitable. They're like, I know that's just on paper, but in reality, um, and that's, and that's just it is part of this is that, that forward thinking about what are we going to do with this asset uh, that you are building? And it, and it really stems from this philosophy of paying yourself first and the pay yourself first philosophy is about paying your future self first it's not go out and shop it's paying your future self which is what that profit account is really all about i love it absolutely there is two ways that you pay yourself as a business owner the first way is that you take a market-based wage and to find that out is if you were working for somebody else what would you be getting paid or if you had somebody coming in to do the work that you're doing what would you pay them the second way is that if you are investing in your business and in some cases it's our biggest investment in some cases the only investment you need a return on that investment and yet what happens is exactly what you're saying they um if you're plowing back your profits into your business that is not profit that is actually an expense uh, on your profit and loss account. And I have sold five businesses in my lifetime. And I'm here to tell you that when somebody is looking at your balance sheet and they are looking at your profit and loss account and they see that you are not paying yourself or you're not paying yourself a market-based wage, that is worth less than, it, than the person who is taking income from their business. So, If we're looking to build an asset-based business and that is the goal, you have got to be showing that you're taking an income from the business because why else would somebody buy it? Indulge me. I've got a few new questions over, uh, over last year, but let's give everyone a little bit of an insight. First question for you. I used to ask about the morning, but now I want to know about the night. Do you have a consistent evening routine? And if so, can you share it? I do. So I typically in the evening, I'm reading or watching some type of spiritual mind food. So right now I'm currently reading the Michael Brown presence process that I've just started. I also, I I really spend my evenings in spiritual study. So whether I'm watching a YouTube video, listening to a lecture, maybe even Graham Hancock, um, Uh, that's just a throwback from our pre-show conversation. Um, Or I I love reading uh, Paul Selig's book. So it's going, every night when I'm going to bed, I'm typically drinking some kind of tea or I am... While I'm while I'm reading or studying whatever it is I'm studying, and also I like to plant seeds in my mind of dreaming. I like to study dreaming, and so when I go to bed, I might like write myself a question that I'd like answered in the dream or something along those lines. Okay, second question: What is your big, hairy, audacious goal for 2019? Oh my gosh, I have so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) I think I wrote out like 10 of them. 
a big, big goal is I am moving towards much bigger speaking events and a I just signed a big media contract. So it's looking like getting myself to a place of being more well-known in the media. I don't know what that looks like right now because it's just starting, but definitely have um, goals of just getting myself out there in the national media. What is something you were scared of, but you conquered and it enabled you to move forward? I have been very scared of fear that has to do with trauma. And I have completely repositioned all of my beliefs around this and understand that all of the things that have happened to me in my life, all of the traumas, uh, the tragedies have all been what has built a woman of influence, a woman of radical resilience, and it's put me in such a powerful position. So the things that I might have in the past looked at and felt like that I was never going to be X, Y, Z because this happened to me or that happened to me, I would now say I am a woman of X, Y, Z because this happened to me or that happened to me. I love that shift. Thank you. What is something totally badass about you that people would not otherwise know? (laughs) Oh, well, um, I am such an adventurer. When I was a little girl, there was a part of me, and obviously there was a part of me that wanted to be a businesswoman, but if I didn't get that career, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And so I do a lot of badass things. Like I just went to Peru and stayed in the jungle. And when I say the jungle, I mean the real jungle. Like there was no electricity, there was no resort, there was huts and a river for 10 days. And did five ayahuasca ceremonies, also did a cambo cleanse, which was not fun. Don't recommend it, except for I guess it's good. Um, so I'm always doing these like outrageous adventures. Like if if Elon Musk called me up and said I could go up in one of those rockets, I'd probably be like, okay, yes, sign me up. Let me just update my life insurance policy. I love I love that. Who do you admire or look up to? So many people. I mean, I just have to tell you that I am mad passionately in love with Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I admire her so much. I was listening to a YouTube video. It was like a 10 minute recording of of her just talking about stuff and her ability to talk about things that would have previously been considered woo woo. Like she's talking about everything being source energy. You know, she's gone full on metaphysical teacher and she, she is there's no apology about it. Like she is all about it. She's willing to put it out there and she can speak on it so eloquently. And I just really, really admire her ability to do that. And, and, you know, her massive ability to make change in this world. Yes, she has left a legacy that is quite uh, unbelievable and unprecedented. Last question for you, Mary, you answered this last year, but I am always going to want to know from people entrepreneurism, are we born this way? Or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? You know, and I changed my mind on it. So I feel like I came into this lifetime probably knowing how to run a business with my eyes closed. 
So I definitely think it's part of it's just part of my soul imprint of who I am. But I also believe that I chose the circumstances that gave me gave me the life lessons that I was going to need to develop the radical resilience to be able to weather the storms of being a true entrepreneur, because that path is not for everybody, for sure. It is absolutely not. And even if you have the skill to run a business, you're quite right. There's a whole other emotional requirement uh, to being an entrepreneur. Mary, like always, uh, conversations with you are so fun and fascinating. I know people are wanting to have more of your wisdom. Where can we send them so they have more access to you? Yeah, now I love um, any kind of social media. I love LinkedIn, especially. So if anyone wants to find me on LinkedIn, the name is Mary Shores, S-H-O-R-E-S. Of course, Instagram. I know that a lot of your social media family is on Instagram. I think it's Mary underscore Shores. Of course, we have Facebook and Twitter and we have all the things. And my website is MaryShores.com. And um, that's pretty easy to find. I also always say if you resonated with what we talked about and you want to learn more, especially about the communication piece or business, check out the book Conscious Communications on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Read the description and some reviews. I think you'll know right away whether the book is for you. Amazing. Mary, like always, thank you so much for being here. I think part of being a female leader is how we have that balance. And I love this idea that when you self-care mentally and emotionally and physically, you actually expand your capacity to do those different pieces. It's why it is such a limiting belief, ladies, that you don't have time for yourself. Like, you can't do that. You can't do that and do it all. The secret to being able to do more is actually to do more for yourself. Totally. That wasn't a question. That was just me. No, it's so true. Like, and it, and that's, so that goes back to, and I, this is something that ties in perfectly. I think this is, since we're just going off the cuff and I'm just, we're just doing a big brain dump. We're in the state of flow. We're in the state of flow. Absolutely. Flow state. So here's the thing, like part of why women do that. And I find myself doing that too, notwithstanding all the, the practices I've implored, like as, as a mom to my beautiful son, Elia, who's three and a half and, um, have been kind of more on a, of a single mom for quite a while. First of all, you have to get over the whole mom guilt thing, right? The whole guilt of as a, as a working mom who's an entrepreneur, it's like, you know, I'm not as home as much as I want to be. And when I'm not home, I'm thinking about my son. And when I'm at work, I'm, or when I'm home, I'm thinking about work and you're everywhere all the time and you're nowhere at the same time. So that was something I had to learn to give up. And that was something that I really worked really hard on on just being present to where I was. Like when I'm home, I'm home. And when I'm at work and I'm at work and I, and I'm just, I, I am clear and I understand that that's what there is to do. Um, the other piece is that, you know, for me, in order to function and operate at my highest capacity and be of highest service to my clients or my team or my son, it's about filling my tank up first. And one of the things that women do and we're taught to do, I think just as culturally and conditioning and everything is that you fill up everybody else first and whatever is left in the tank is for you. But it's like, no, it's like that, that mask needs to go on you first so that you, like I talk about, like you build up your container, you fill yourself up, you fill up your capacity to lead and to love. And then you're overflowing with it because love is infinite, right? As opposed to if you're coming and you're starting the day from scarcity, like there's not enough time. I don't have time to work out. I don't have time to meditate. My kids, this and that. You go into martyrdom. You go into this victim martyrdom and this, I call it victim consciousness, which is such a low vibration. You know what I mean? Like you don't feel good when you're in victim 
And I, this is the, something I teach and this is something I'm going to be teaching in, in the work I'm doing is that you, you always manifest and you always create from a, a high vibration state, a, a high vibration feeling state. So when you think back to any time in your life that you were in flow or creating amazing content or creating a new business, you were in a high vibration state. You were full of joy and curiosity and wonder and love and excitement. And you cannot create from a low vibration state. If you're feeling anxious, depressed, overwhelmed, frustrated, and resigned, well, you're not going to create anything from there, you know, or you might create more of that feeling. So that's why I always say that my, my most important practice in the morning, if I'm waking up and I feel a little off that day, I go and I have to center myself. I like meditate or I do my affirmations or I do some of my daily practice because it shifts the entire day if I start my day off well. It's why I do my workouts in the morning and I meditate and I I literally pour a lot of love into myself first so that I can pour love into others. And that is not selfish, ladies. That is actually how you lead effectively. You can't lead effectively if your barrel is completely empty. I feel like this is the foundation of the blueprint of the female leader. <laughs> yes, this is the foundation of the blueprint of the female leader. This is this is the paradigm. This is my sort of next. This is my quest and my crusade is to like and and this kind of came from too working with CEO women one on one in my practice and just hearing so much of that kind of victim martyrdom thing. Like you know, well, I've got to pick up my kids from school, and I'm not saying that that's not real. Like that's real for people. Oh, there it's are, real. It's real, and I get <laughs> it. There are all those considerations, absolutely, and. There's ways of making small shifts. Like it's not about spending, you know, 24 hours meditating, but it's about literally having a, a shift in your mindset that looks like, you know what? I deserve to give myself love too. You know, it looks like I am worthy of love and support in my life. It's like all those beliefs that we have, it's really turning them on our heads and saying things like, and this is something I teach is like really understanding how affirmations work and all those other fun things. But if you truly start to really look at some of your limit, limiting beliefs and limitations and ideas of the world or imprints, whatever you want to call them, if you've got a belief or an imprint or you know um, a limiting belief that looks like, you know, I'm not worthy of love or I'm not worthy of something, well, guess what? You are going to find evidence your entire life of that belief because that's what your mind will seek. And if you start to really understand that, when you pour more love into yourself, you feel and you become worthy of love for yourself, you become a far better mother, a far better spouse, a far better leader, a far better human, period. And if all of us were actually res took responsibility for our mindset and for creating a, a skilled mind, I think we would have a very different world. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's funny because I was talking about this with one of my clients yesterday who's a female leader. And I said, you know, I, I brought up masculine and feminine leadership. She's like, what does that mean? And this is my point is like, this is something that's intuitive in us, but we don't have an understanding of what that means. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that with you because I think it's important for people to understand that there's a masculine way to lead and there's a feminine way to lead. And those, that those are different traits and both are really necessary and important, but it's important to have them in balance. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think we should talk about it. Okay, great. Because that's kind of what you're alluding to, but I'd love, I'd love to give it a framework. We I have love an idea. Framework. Let's do a podcast about it. 
<laughs> Perfect. So, okay. So I love talking about masculine and feminine leadership. And this is part of my research. This is part of when I talk about female leadership and confidence and all these things. Part of it is that what you're basically, what you just basically said, which was brilliant, is that this old style of leadership, and this is what the evidence is actually showing about leadership. When you look at the research on leadership is that that dictatorial, very masculine way to lead. By the way, let me just clarify. Just because I'm saying masculine energy and feminine doesn't mean I mean male and female. Everyone, every human has both energies, both male and female. And it's just where you're dominating from. So, you know, the way that leadership used to run, especially in corporate, especially like when you look at banks and those types of types of very corporate uh, institutions, everything was very much led from a masculine perspective. So what I mean by that is some masculine qualities are... um decision-making and can be a bit dictatorial or maybe aggressive. Uh, it could be a bit like, here's how it's going to be. So men, you know, the masculine energy is problem solving. It's rational. It's analytical. It's very, it's very in the doingness of things. Okay. The feminine, the feminine side, the feminine energy to leadership is collaboration, empathy, compassion. It's the receiving, it's the beingness of things. So we all have a masculine and feminine energy or part of us. It's kind of like the yin and the yang. And what's happening in the world of leadership, and this is what everyone's talking about in leadership now, is that there's this shift towards wanting a more feminine energy or style of leadership, not just a masculine style, you know, wanting collaboration, wanting more empathy, more compassion, wanting um, different aspects, wanting to, to, to collaborate with other people and not just being told what to do. So it's important to understand that one is not better than the other, but when we're too far on one, when we're too dominant in our masculine, and we basically annihilate the feminine natures that we have, especially women, we're not actually utilizing all of our true brilliance. I call it like our superpower as a, as a female leader, especially like you and I, when I think about some of the, the leaders that I, you know, you're one of the leaders I love because you're, you're ambitious, which is a very masculine quality, but you're also super compassionate. You know, so there's ways to use both of those in, in a nice balance because you don't want to be two on one side or the other. Does that make sense? Completely. Yeah. So what I, and I, this is from my own lived experience is like, I remember when I first started my business, even up until the last five years ago, when I started to delve more into the masculine and the feminine leadership styles, and, you know, I used to lead for my masculine so hard. I mean, People were like, you're so ambitious, but I was driving in my masculine so much. I didn't even know what it meant like to be in my feminine. And I remember going to like an event a few years ago and, and, uh, some of the women that were there were like, yeah, like you're really in your masculine. And I like thought that was a compliment. And then I realized it wasn't really a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) And, but guess what? When you're a woman and you're so in your masculine at work, what do you think happens when you come home? You're also in your masculine. And then I was wondering, why am I still single? How come I can't keep a relationship? Like, because I basically lived my life in my masculine. So I got a lot of stuff done, but I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to be in my feminine. I didn't know how to receive love and support in my life. I didn't know what true partnership felt like because I was literally just like used to doing everything. And then confirmation bias at its fullest is I had a child and I became a single mom. So I had to be the mom and the dad and at work with the team. And I was like really in my masculine, right? And the biggest shift I had spiritually and in my business and in my life is when I really understood how to start to 
cultivate this self-love and not from like a hokey when people talk about self-love and they're just like self-love, but actually understand what self-love is and really understand how my childhood impacted my identity and why I became this very driven person and start to heal some of those wounds and then start to add on meditation and affirmations and breath work and, and, and personal growth and all the things. And I started to be able to understand and cultivate the feminine in me. That's when my business flourished. That's when I met my current partner, who's now my fiance. And that was like never possible for me. Like you've got to get that like people that knew, know me well, you know, I really had it like I'm going to be single forever because, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be in my masculine at work and come home and be in my feminine, right? I was just masculine all the time. And this happens to think about as I'm saying this, Megs, how many women do you know that are like that? Like a million, all of my girlfriends who are, who are entrepreneurs, who are like, shout out to you who are listening, you know who you are. You know, it's like, I, I look at so many of my awesome, we call them badass boss babes and they're badass, but they, they haven't really dug into like what it is to be a woman in your feminine energy and the divineness of that. And it's a superpower truly, because if you can understand that leading and being super driven and ambitious, but also being really compassionate and being really centered and being really empathetic and being really grounded in those other things and collaborative and learning how to go between one and the other in a beautiful dance. And that's actually like a superpower that men have as well, by the way, like men are some, some of the men I know in my life are incredible leaders, but it's because they don't just dominate from their masculine. They know how to cultivate the feminine. And I'm sure you can think of some men in your life too, who are amazing leaders because they have that softness. hundred percent. Yeah. So that's why I like to distinguish that for people because it's not like men are good and bad or women are good. This is not, a, I love men. And I think that me, some of the men in my life who've been mentors are the most phenomenal leaders I know. It's the ones that are actually able to balance both those masculine and feminine qualities. And some of the women that I know who are like you talk about, they may be at the top of the organization, but they're not very good leaders. It's because it's, it's truly because they've never really known that it's safe to step into their feminine leadership styles because that, that used to be like you called antiquator. That used to be considered like a, a weakness, right? Like, you know, you used to go to your job and if a woman would cry, she'd be, they'd be like, Oh, is she on her period? It's like, no, I'm just, I'm feeling all the feelings and that's actually a good thing. <laughs> if you've already done the work, which so many of the individuals I, I, I hang out with have already done the, the self-work, they're all pretty happy people, but they have this massive source of stress that is the lack of predictable income in their life. I'm telling you, you get that rolling in your business and it is, it is life-changing in terms of who you are and how you view this entity of, of business in your world. I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you've seen with people, but like that is the first jumping off point as an entrepreneur where I'm like, oh, you might mistake money for buying you happiness right now because it is such a relief when you know you're going to be able to earn consistently from month to month. Absolutely. And what I love about the Profit First system as well is that it shows you that until you are earning that predictable income month over month, don't even think about growing. And this is a mistake that I see entrepreneurs make all the time and guilty as charged is growing for the sake of growth and believing that increasing top line revenue means more profits. And that is not how this all goes down. 
it's again, back to Parkinson's law, that demand will always meet supply. So we want to make sure that we are having certain profit levels and as well, taking that market-based wage from our business, that predictable income that you speak of. And until that's happening, you do not even think about moving into growth mode. Once you get to that place, then what I like about the system is it shows you, okay, here's the next bucket. And once you've hit that capacity and you're in that next bucket, then let's look about, look about growth. And just using this system as well, just to help you move along in the trajectory of your business. So if we take it from here, you know, this notion of um, creating profitability and having a consistent income, which again, I cannot underscore enough will change your life. Um, when we look at this from the opposite side, what mistakes are people making? And you alluded to this, this attempt to grow before we have something steady. What are some of the other mistakes that you are seeing people make? The biggest mistake that I see business owners is chasing top line and really getting away from the core of their business. And what I mean by that is, um, and, and you talked about it in regards to uh, your last, your article actually in Forbes about having purpose. And what I see happening is that, especially during, during this pandemic, is this whole action for the sake of action, busyness for the sake of busyness, throwing anything against the wall to see if it sticks. And it's not even part of your core proficiencies or your life's purpose. And what happens is we're always chasing this. And I'll just give you the example that Mike Michalowicz uses in the book. So um, somebody comes to clean out your gutters and while he's up there, he also sees that your lawn needs to be mowed. So he decides to mow your lawn too. And while he's mowing your lawn, he sees that you have a crack in your foundation. So he's going to fix the crack in your foundation too. So it turned into from a $1,000 job to a $5,000 job, but he had to go out and buy a lawnmower and he had to go out and buy cement for the foundation. And so his expenses at the end of the day were $5,000, where the person who just stuck to cleaning out the gutter and did five of those jobs every day, he actually ended up with $5,000 in his pocket. Whereas the person who was trying to serve many instead of his core competency Yes, he had larger top line revenue, but at the end of the day, he had less in his genes. And I see this happen time and time again. And there's a, there's phases to business too. And, and when you're in that first phase of business, which is a hustle phase, we get scrappy sometimes mm -hmm. like, Oh, I need more revenue. I need more, I need more money. I need more things. And, and I think that's when the big shiny objects which in this case is fixing the foundation, sometimes pull us away from that core purpose as opposed to really focusing on the fundamentals and growing in alignment with our core competencies. I think it is such a key, exactly. key point. What about some of the mindset blocks that you are observing in small business owners? I think a lot of us um, just don't dare to dream big enough. I hope... I love the saying that shoot for the moon and if you don't make it, you're going to land in the stars. And I think one of the things that we do, I, I dare say, especially where I'm from, is just this capacity to stay small. And by staying small, um, what we do is we really sort of 
shoot ourselves in the foot, if you will. And I think that as entrepreneurs, we have a duty to our community um, to be the best that we can be. And really just diving deep in understanding how money can actually be of service um, is really important. You hit the nail on the head earlier when you said, Megan, about that you've seen lots of what we would call quote unquote traditional wealthy people who are still stressed about money. And it's just keeping ourselves in this place of scarcity um, I'm seeing happening time and time again with our entrepreneurs. I love that. Do you have some top resources, some, some favorite books that you'd love to recommend around either the money mindset piece or the management of money? Absolutely. Um, I, my favorite on the mindset piece is um, The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And in that book, she really talks about the wealthiest people in the world have probably one of the biggest uh, struggles with scarcity. It seems the more that we have, the more we want to grab onto it and just keep it tight. So that's one of my favorites. And one of my favorite books that I read every year is The E-Myth. It's a classic. It is a classic. (laughs) Profit First, of course, by Mike Michalowicz. Um, And Big Profits, Big Results is one that I like to read on the daily or weekly as well. I love where it talks about um, this whole idea of taking a market-based wage and not to um, really confuse your net income with your income. And also it has a really great model on our human resources and how to really, one of the biggest struggles that entrepreneurs have is with their staff. And it really helps um, put the numbers on that as well. So that's, that's another one of my favorites. Those are some great, um, great choices. I just, I flipped open my Audible because I was like, oh, I know there's lots of books on, on money sitting in my library here. One of my favorites is Happy Pocket Full of Money, which is not on Audible, but it is on my bedside table. And it's, it's classic. Like it's just, it's just amazing. And if you know, you need to start somewhere with money mindset, it's a fantastic one um, to have a look at. I also really love secrets of the millionaire mind. I just feel like it's, it too falls into that, that classic category. Um, And those are, those are two that I will often go back to. And then Denise Duffield Thomas wrote one called get rich lucky bitch. And I like that one too. I just find it's got some practical mindset pieces and I love that it's written by a woman and um, there's an energy to women who lean in to money. There's an energy to my friend, Jill Stanton just dropped a new podcast called the millionaire girls club. And she and I love to talk about money. We love being able to talk about it being fully autonomous and uh, the power of contribution that can move along with it. Um, so that's another, that's another resource that people can, uh, can check out as her podcast and her conversations. I feel like this is a perfect place to make a transition in the interview to something I called our KPIs. So just like we have key performance indicators in our business, I believe we have them in how we live our lives as well. So I've got four rapid fire questions for you. I heard about this. It's like everyone gets a little bit scared. There's nothing scary. What is your most recommended book of all time? If we had to pick one, you're like, oh, I just want to give this to everybody. It would be profit first. Love it. 
What's your favorite health hack? Oh my gosh. Making sure that my gym clothes are out and ready the night before. Yes. I hear you on that. How would you define your purpose? I want to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Amazing. And last question for you, April, entrepreneurism. Are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? Oh my gosh. So many debates on that. Oh, born. Love it. Decisive and to the point. You're up to so many amazing things. Where can we send people to learn more about your work, April? Absolutely. So you can find out about my work on my website. It's pretty easy. AprilStroink.ca. Um, also on Facebook. And under the same April Strike and on LinkedIn. I want to transition the interview. I've got six rapid fire questions for you. I call these our KPIs or key performance indicators. So just like we have them in business, we have them in our lives. So Mm -hmm. we just want to get a behind the scenes look at Adele Tavlin. You ready? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Everyone's always like, oh gosh. And then they're like, oh, that was so easy. Um, That's fine. Who is inspiring you right now? Honestly, like, I don't want to sound super cheesy, but you would be one of the people that's inspiring me right now. And I'll say that because, and I'm not just saying it because you're there, but you, you really do inspire me because you are always walking on, on the ledge, often by yourself with a smile on your face and super loving and compassionate. I'm also super inspired by how you've transitioned your business lately and really let go of some of the things that don't serve you. So you're actually one of my key people. When I think of especially women, you'd be one of them. Oh, that's so nice of you. It's true. It's true. Thank that's you. It's the truth. Yeah. I'm trying to receive. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank the feeling you. is exactly. so mutual. Right. Moving on. No, thank you. Um, fiction or nonfiction? What are you reading right now? I always read um, personal development books. Like I'm, I'm reading Conversations with God by Neil oh, Donald Walsh. So it good. is. I know. It's <sighs> so good. Oh, so good. So I'm reading that. I'm, I'm kind of one of my biggest problems is I read a bunch of different books at the same time. But um, I just finished The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Amazing. If you haven't read any Michael Singer, you need to read Michael Singer. And then now I'm, I'm reading Conversations with God. Well, those are powerful books. Yes. <laughs> what is one thing you are most consistent with with respect to your health? Working out every day. Um, I'm active every day. So I'm either in the gym training or I'm doing Pilates twice a week or I walk everywhere. Um, I'm active every day. It is, it is for me, not about the fit, the physical benefits of it are one thing, but it's my mental emotional. I, I noticed that my mood, my, yeah, my affect, my, my creativity, just how I feel about myself. Like when I've got my it, like endorphins pumping in the morning, it makes the biggest difference. Yeah. So that would say that. What is something totally badass about you that people would not otherwise know? <laughs> Yes. I don't even know what that means. Something badass about myself that people would otherwise not know. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example? It was just like something, it's like something super cool behind the scenes. People don't know. Like you, like you do crazy stuff on your Instagram with Pilates. That's pretty badass. Yeah. So I, okay. That's a good example. So pretty badass about me. Yeah. I was, a, I was a professional dancer, trained dancer for like 18 years. So I love Pilates and my Pilates instructor loves doing like crazy acrobatic stuff with me. So that's, that's super fun. So I find that like 
my I'm in my I'm in my zone of genius when I'm moving my body and when I'm flowing and dancing and like doing like cool Pilates stuff. So yes, that would be one of them. <laughs> what do you do for fun or play? Um, honestly, like my favorite thing to do is hang out with Dave and and uh, Ilya, my son and my fiance, and we we do lots of parks and we literally, I think having my son has, and I'm sure every parent would say this, like it's really brought me back to wonder and curiosity and play, and I really use that time with my son to like play, like run around the park and play with him in ways that, cause life can be so serious when you're an entrepreneur and everything. And I think that time with him is so fun because I just get to be a kid again. Totally. So true. And yeah. last question for you, mm-hmm. Adele, entrepreneurism, are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? Honestly, that is such, that is such a, Interesting question. I think we're born this way. <laughs> I really do. And I think you can learn it, but I think, I think it's something that's just innate in us sometimes because I got to tell you, it is really being an entrepreneur can be so hard. Talk about the path of most resistance, you know? Um, and I think that like, it's true. It is not yes. the path of least resistance. It is an uphill climb until, until it's not. And then it is again. But I think, I think we're born this way in some ways because I would consider myself always, and you're probably similar to have been a nonconformist. I didn't like people telling me what to do. I always saw things from a different perspective. I never really fit into a box. And I didn't know that that was called entrepreneurship. I just knew I was different. And then when I became an entrepreneur, I was, and I started to join and meet in groups and meet other entrepreneurs like Archangel or all these other dovetail, all these other groups I'm part of. I was like, oh, that's just like what it is to be like an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like you don't like to be told what to do. You like to create. I'm very creative. And I think growing up, like I was very academic and I always did really well, excelled in math and science. And so my parents were like, you know, you need to go to med school or dental school. And, and I thought I would do that. But the truth is, is that I'm actually quite a visionary, but that part of myself was never really cultivated until later on in my life. So yeah, I think the answer to that is I think you're born this way. <laughs> baby you're born this way <laughs> they, they, uh, we, we will end on Lady Gaga speaking of strong female uh, totally. leaders Adele you're up to so many cool things where can we send people to follow you and learn more about this next leadership iteration that's so cool thank you so you can follow me at uh, Adele Wellness so my you know uh, AdeleWellness.com my Instagram handles Adele underscore wellness Facebook page is actually the CEO blueprint, which is the name of my new, my new venture, um, CEO blueprint. Um, so you can either find me at Adele wellness or the CEO blueprint on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and on my website, I love you long time eggs. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.